Matthew chapter 16, and we want to work on a question. Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Or say I am. Matthew 16, beginning with verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, say, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? They said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful again to be able to fellowship. It's always nice to be able to gather with saints that love you and love your word. For a few moments tonight as we look into the scripture, give us ears to hear and let me teach clearly. We're so grateful that you so love the world you gave your only begotten son to die for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This certainly is one of those passages that stand out in people's memory because the part in verse 18 where he says upon this rock I'll build my church you have large segments of the church that consider that one of the foundational stones of their own existence but the gospel of Matthew tells us a lot about Jesus ministering the region of Galilee which would be northern Israel Verse 13 speaks of Caesarea Philippi. Originally, this area was called Paneas or Paneum. The reason for that is because Caesarea Philippi used to have a very, a very vibrant uh, location where people came and worshipped the god Pan, which was one of the Roman gods of fertility and uh, lasciviousness and sexual fornication and all of that kind of a thing. And one of the one of the, the, the rulers later on changed the name from Panea to Caesarea after Caesar and then gave it gave it Philippi after after himself. So when we when we think of Caesarea Philippi, let's think of a mountainous region in northern uh, Israel and then in one of these large mountains there is a an open cavern, very huge, where thousands of people can gather and inside there was a hole that went down into the, the, the earth. And it's that place they called the gates of hell. The Romans were under the impression in their mythology that the gods, some of the gods could come up and go down from that particular location. When Jesus goes on to say to Peter, then the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, talking about his church, then quite naturally people would understand him to be making some kind of allusion to this big, huge cave that's there, saying that despite Roman mythology, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be stronger, it would be indestructible, and no matter what religion is present in the earth, no matter how big it is, how many people are worshiping in it, it would never be able to defeat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then verse 13, having Having given that little bit of context and background, he, he, he poses a question to his disciples. And I, I like the question because he says, what are people saying about me? What are the rumors? 
What's the scuttlebutt? You folks are connected with a lot of the people. What, what exactly is going on? It's not like Jesus was isolated and he himself wasn't involved with uh, the masses of people. But the disciples, I'm sure, would have been engaged in conversations he wasn't engaged in. He was teaching and, and things of that manner. But why would he want to know? I mean, most people, if you ask them, are you, w- would you be concerned about the, the gossip and the rumors about you in the community, most people would say no, even though they really do want to know what's being said. If you, if you don't believe me, why do you think social media is so popular? I, I, have, I have preacher friends that can sit down on Facebook for hours because they want to know what's going on in, in, in the lives of, uh, of other people. Okay, then, who, who, who does everyone say that I, the son of man, am? So that's the question. What's going on in the community? What is it that people are saying? Well, the scripture says a good name is rather to be chosen than silver or gold. If someone was running down your name, would you want to know? If somebody was slandering you, would you want to know? Of course you would. Who who doesn't want to know the juicy tidbits of what's going on and what people are saying, especially if you're the center of the conversation? Most people do want to know. And um, when you find out, man, what what are you going to do with the information? They told Jesus, listen to the reply he got in verse 14. He said, well, some folks are saying you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Well, that's what Herod thought one time. This this man, Jesus, surely this is John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He's doing all of these miracles. Other people thought he was Elijah. Because of the kinds of miracles, people being raised from the dead, people being healed, those kinds of supernatural things. Other people thought he was Jeremiah because he was a prophet and he was speaking forth things that were not always nice in regard to Israel. Jeremiah had a lot to say about judgment and doom that was coming to the nation of Israel. And then it says, or one of the prophets. So this this tells us that as far as all of the other people were concerned... Everybody at least believed he was a prophet, at least a prophet. And being a prophet, they believed that he carried the word of the Lord, that he spoke the word of the Lord in truth. And that was interesting to them because all of these folks in verse 14 are different. John the Baptist, the scripture says, never did a miracle, even though he prophesied. Elijah did all kinds of miracles. Jeremiah, he had visions. And he prophesied about doom. But then it doesn't give us the names of the other people who are mentioned. Having received that information, he's no longer interested in what everybody else is saying on the outside over here. Then he wants to take it and make it more personal. He asks in verse number 15, okay, but who do you say that I am? See, Now, this is important because the people that are closest to you, their comments and their remarks can heal or wound you a whole lot easier and faster than the comments and remarks of people that you don't even know personally. That's true. On a, on a Sunday or, or, or a day where my wife and I may be going somewhere and we've got to get dressed up in order to attend some kind of a function, everyone in there can walk up to her and say, oh my, those are beautiful shoes. Wow, that, I love 
that headband that you're wearing. That's a beautiful hat. That's a, that's a lovely dress that you have on. Now they can say that all night long, but it doesn't matter until I say it. See? That's what she's waiting on. See, she, she, she wants to hear, she wants to hear me say it. Because there, there, there is in the relationship something that is important because those that are closest to you are able to affect you in, in, in greater measure than, than, than somebody else. To, to give you another illustration, as well as she knows me and I know her, I can push buttons, I can push buttons in her life that nobody else can push. I know I can because I do it all the time. I push buttons I don't even know exist. And, and, and it creates sometimes tension. So when Jesus says to them, okay, I'm interested in what you think. You've been walking with me now for months, for years. You've seen the miracles you've heard me teach. You've been with me at mealtime. We've, we've spent the night together. We've fellowshiped. I've been with your families. I've done what I could to, to equip you and help you and to train you and transform you into fishers of men. What do you think about me? And I, and I love the answer Peter gives in verse 16. He's the one that speaks up. And, and he says three things here. Number one, you're the Christ. Number two, you're the son. Then third thing, he acknowledges the, the living God. So the first thing, he's the Christ. The, the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis, where there's the verse that says the scepter will not depart from Jacob. Going all the way back to where it says in, in Genesis 3 that, that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Israelite people have awaited the day when a mighty hero would rise up to deliver them from all foreign power. And whenever they were under the yoke of the Babylonians, coming all the way up through the Philistines, the Moabites, then when we move again, Babylonians, the Greeks, as well as the Persians, and then at the present time, the Romans, there were constantly people prophesying that God was going to send somebody special. I'm going to send somebody like unto Moses. Him you're going to listen to. That kind of a thing. Somebody of the, of the seed of David is going to come and sit on the throne. And he will have a, a reign or a kingdom that lasts forever. So the children of Israel were hearing these prophecies. Isaiah told them about somebody who would come and you would look upon him and there would be nothing about him that would, you would find him attractive. Nevertheless, he would bear our griefs and our sorrows we learn from one of the prophets that he he would come riding in on a on a donkey another one says he's going to be born in bethlehem so the 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 messianic thing was in the air and people were constantly looking for somebody who was going to come and be that deliverer but when jesus showed up on the scene the masses of the people didn't recognize him as that now they've already said we know he's a prophet he's like john the baptist he's like jeremiah but they couldn't go so far as to say he's the anointed Christ that fulfills all prophecies. Peter takes that step and he goes that far and he says that. Now to give you an illustration from today that will help you to understand how difficult it must have been in ancient times to say Jesus was the Christ. Let's suppose someone came to town and um, they, they started a following and they had supernatural occurrences taking place in the ministry and, and large numbers of people were following them throughout the county. And, and then there were even stories of people who had died and then come back 
from the grave. And then suddenly uh, people started walking away from their farms. And then people walked away from some of their other places of employment in order to just follow this person all throughout the county as they traveled and taught people. Now, you know as well as I do, if people started saying that person is the Christ, we believe that's the anointed one that God has sent to lead us in this generation. Your family members and friends would think your ladder is missing a rung. Really? Yeah. They would think there's a problem. And then they probably would go out of their way to try to slowly remove you from the influence of that individual. So imagine what this was like for Peter and the disciples who were following Christ and these religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees who run the temple, the Herodians, the, the people who were zealots, who, who, who were angry at the Roman Empire. All of these people see these disciples running around here and they too are doing what Jesus is doing, healing the sick, casting out devils. These folks are angry. But Jesus asks the question, Peter gives the answer, you're the Christ, the Christ. The reason that's important is because Hebrews says that we should hold fast our profession of faith. Even in a hostile environment, you have to be willing to acknowledge what you believe. Even if you're surrounded by people who deny that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus died on the cross for somebody's sins. When they mock you, when they laugh at you and they say, you need to just leave all that church stuff alone. It's at that point, just like Peter, you should open up your mouth and say he is the Christ. That's how important that is. The next step, he said he called him the son. Interesting, very interesting. In Greco-Roman belief, you've heard people say that Zeus, being the highest god in the Greek pantheon, Jupiter being the equivalent in the Roman pantheon, there were all of these different gods. You had gods of war, gods of the seas, Poseidon, gods of fertility, gods of the skies, and these kinds of things that before there was Zeus and, and his pantheon, there were the Titans. And there were the wars amongst the Greek gods and the, the one who bested all of the other ones ended up becoming the head and that's what Zeus became. And, and the stories amongst the Greeks and the Romans was that some of these Greek gods came down and had physical relations with humans. And this is how we ended up with the names of people like Hercules or as they'll say in uh, literature, Heracles. So these folks were half God, half man, and the Greek word that, that describes that kind of a union of half God, half man, is the word we use in English for hero. Hero. For this man to say that Jesus was the son of the living God, he, he is saying something that people have heard before, but Jewish people would be angry about that because Judaism is a very monotheistic, theistic religion, and they say there is no God with a son. God doesn't have a son. Even Muslims are strong in saying that today. God cannot have a son. He's not begotten, and he does not beget or begot. He doesn't have children because God doesn't convert with different people. But we understand from the scripture, the Bible teaches the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, self-existent, eternal, 
always have been, never will cease to be. And when he says this of Jesus, Peter is acknowledging that he's the son of God, God the son in the sense that you're here with us right now, but you're also the eternal God that came into this world as a babe. Before there was a Mary, before God the Holy Spirit came to Mary, God the son existed. The steps that he's taken in his confession are strong and he's standing on a very good very good foundation. Now, I'll be honest with you. When, when you try to describe the Trinity to people, it, it's not easy. You know, people that they ask you, they say, well, you, you worship three gods. You folks are involved with idolatry. No one God exists in three persons. They say, well, if he exists in three persons, it's three gods. No one God exists in three persons. Same mind. Same substance, one God, one God. When the scripture says in Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God. We're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When Genesis 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then goes on to describe Christ as the Word made flesh, John 1 verse, verse number 14, it's explaining to us that the Father and the Word, the Son, they're one. When Genesis 1 gives us the creation narrative, Colossians chapter 1 says that by him and for him all things exist, and they were created for his glory. That is to say that God the Son was as much involved with creation as God the Father. And if you read the book of Psalms, then you understand that God the Holy Ghost was just as involved in everything else. We, we have a tendency to try to, to uh, allocate certain roles to them. So we'll say... According to Ephesians 1, God the Father is the architect and he plans. And then we'll say, okay, God the Son is, is, is the one who enacts the covenant or the redemption. He's the one that came and died for us. But God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the covenant or the redemption because he's the one that regenerates. Now, that sounds good, and I preach that, and I don't mind preaching that, and I think it's scriptural and fine because it's right in line with Ephesians 1, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the whole scheme of redemption from beginning to end is the work of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, you are the Son of the living God. Now, when he says the living God, the, the Bible says God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living so the people who need God the most are those that are yet breathing. Yeah. We do not need to try to communicate with the deceased. You never need to try to visit with some medium or witch or warlock in order to try to pass a message to someone that's on the other side in eternity. I guarantee if you try that, there will be a familiar spirit that will talk back to you and lead you to believe you're talking to a family member or a friend. It'll be utter deception. So we don't do that. We're, we're serving Jesus, who's the son of the living God. And since he's the God of the living, we, we focus on us that are down here right now. And when we pray, we pray to the living God. We don't pray to a statue. We don't have we don't have a figurine on some shelf in our home. And then we walk by it and we bow down and we pray with the expectation that that figurine is going to help us. 
We don't go out into a field somewhere where there's a big, huge stone or wooden thing that's built. And then we, you know, like some people do around the world, they'll take a bowl of rice and some vegetables and put it inside the back of the statue, believing that that'll please the gods and the gods will come and receive it as an offering. We don't do that because our God is not in stone. He's a living God. We say very often we're going to church, but to be quite honest, we're the church. People are the church. The building is just a place where Christians gather together. God doesn't live in sheetrock and shingles. He doesn't live in a concrete floor and carpet. He lives in the hearts of people. So when all the people get together, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. It's the living God that we serve. That's, that's a good thing, good thing to know. Now, he makes that statement and notice verse 17. So Jesus says to him, you're a blessed man, Simon. Well, that's good because Simon very often, he, 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 he would put his foot in his mouth. I've told you he had that foot in mouth disease. He oftentimes spoke when he should not have been speaking. But the Lord says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Now, flesh and blood, that's a phrase that in Hebrew just simply means a human. A person, a natural person didn't reveal this to you. You did not learn this from a conversation with your neighbor across the fence. He said, my father in heaven revealed this to you. So the role of the heavenly father then is to reveal to us truth. How is it that 10 people can listen to the same message? Three of them believe and seven of them walk away and don't believe anything at all. How is it that... that um, Six people can hear a teaching. All of them will hear it on a different level because they will hear it in accordance with what's going on in their life and, and, and where they're living in their life and, and things like that. And the spirit of the God, spirit of the Lord is the one who's bringing revelation and bringing truth. So wherever you are in your Christian walk, when someone's teaching scripture, because scripture is a living thing. And the Bible says it's sharper than a sword and it's able to cut down into the marrows and joints of the of the body. The word of the Lord is able to deal with things in you that the natural eye is unable to see. Your neighbor has no idea what you're going through individually inside in your own heart. But the spirit of God is able to see that. And he's dealing with you about this. He deals with you about that. And that is him revealing to you truth. And that's why some people become Christian. And they do it without ever telling anybody. Well, they become a Christian without having told anyone. And you ask them, well, when did it happen? Some people can tell you exactly when it happened. But other people, they can't tell you exactly. They just know somehow that truth was revealed to them and they have believed it. But it comes from God. It comes from God. And, and it's, a, it's a matter of revelation. The, the Bible says that this book here, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It says, we've not believed uh, fables and legends that have been cunningly devised. This is not a book like Aesop's tales and fables from ancient times when the animals would speak and they would teach proverbial wisdom and stuff like that. When Second Peter and Peter talks about this, they are saying this book is the living word of God. It teaches what we need to know about God. And Father in heaven, he's the one that reveals to you the truth. He helps you to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. And when you're listening to television or radio or a sermon, there's something in your heart that says to you, well, that isn't quite right, what they're saying. 
Only God can reveal that to you. And so the, the scripture then, as a matter of revelation, becomes very important. Now, let us go to another book, since we're working on this revelation thing. Let's go to Second Timothy. Still talking about the Father being a revealer of truth. He's the one that spoke to Peter's heart. Second Timothy 3, verse number 14. If you run into the book of Leviticus, go the opposite direction. Second Timothy 3, verse number 14. But continue thou in the things that you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. So, so he's saying be confident about what has been taught to you and confident about the relationship you have with the person from whom you learned it. Because they have taught you truth. And then he says, verse 15, from a child, so, so you can see uh, kids are able learners. From a child, you've known the holy scriptures. Notice the adjective of holy. This is the way we approach the book. The Bible is not a book like all other books. Doesn't matter what the reporters and the scholars say. It's, it, these are holy scriptures. They are sanctified. They are sacred. They are not to be treated like you would you know, some other kind of literature. We don't read this like we read Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid or Shakespeare. This isn't like reading one of one of Milton's poems. This this is holy literature and your approach to it has everything to do with what you're going to receive from it. Because if you come to the come to the scripture and you think the book is no different than a history book that you can buy at Barnes and Nobles or somewhere that you can get online at Amazon.com. Once you start looking at this book, this book will never touch your heart if you don't approach it with the right mind and the right attitude. Holy scriptures. He says that are able to make you wise. I've never met anybody that did not want wisdom. But then it specifically says, wise unto salvation. So this book, the Holy Scriptures, will make you wise in your understanding toward redemption, the process of redemption. The Bible will not give you wisdom on how to repair a combine. The Bible is not going to tell you how to change the tire on your car. The scriptures are not going to make you wise regarding how to make a homemade pound cake. But the scripture will give you wisdom regarding salvation. To be able to tell people what it is, how it operates, how it functions inside of you. And then it says, wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ, Christ Jesus. So we learn faith by the scripture. So here, here's another verse. Okay, faith cometh by what? Hearing. So I have to hear something in order for my faith to develop and grow. If I don't hear something that is causing my faith, my faith muscles to get bigger and stronger, then then that's going to mean that my faith is not going to grow. If faith can manifest and grow and get bigger, so can doubt. So if all you hear are things that teach you to doubt Scripture, then your doubts, your fears, your anxieties about Scripture will grow. And this is why when you look at, uh, when you look at book catalogs, Christian book catalogs, occasionally 
you'll see you'll see uh, books that have titles like um, scriptures that embarrass God. And, and so they'll they'll go through the Old Testament. They'll find some of the, some of the worst stories you can think of. You know, the flood, everybody died. Uh, the story where the angels smote the Assyrians in the middle of the night and the people died. The story of the, the Red Sea party and then the Israelites being delivered and then the, the Egyptian people dying. And then they'll look for all of those scriptures and put them all together in order to demonstrate to you that, that the God of the Old Testament, he's he really not a just and fair and nice God as everybody thinks. See, See the, their approach to scripture is different than the approach of a believer and so they will say that the Christian approaches the Bible superstitiously. Their mind is bound to antiquated beliefs from thousands of years ago. And they'll say that we're free thinkers and we're liberated in our thought without knowing that the scripture teaches that their minds also are bound, but bound to and by sin. Sin. So the approach to scripture has everything to do with a person's person's. Um, a person's faith and how they're going to receive from God. When we look here and it talks about why is unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ, the person who doesn't have faith, I guarantee you they won't become wise unto salvation in this book because they approach it with a hostile attitude. I'm going to prove that Jesus did not die on the cross and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write the Gospels, and that some of what they said is historically wrong, and I'm going to demonstrate that, and I'm going to prove it. Well, you you can work you can work really hard to do it because there've been people for a couple of thousand years trying to do it, and there still are Christians on this earth. It's not going to change. Long after the last skeptic has died and gone to an eternity without Christ, there'll still be a church. Because Jesus already said, "I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell." Other beliefs, other doctrines are not going not gonna to prevail against it. Now, some of you are probably familiar with that man uh, during the Enlightenment, Mr. Voltaire. They said Mr. Voltaire was a very, very angry man when he came to religion and did not care at all for, for Christianity. And, and I've read a few of his letters that he wrote to religious people, and he was very disrespectful and irreverent with the way he addressed them and some of the things he said in his letters. But... This man, he, he used to talk about how one day you'd have to go to, uh, to a museum to see a Bible because it's going to become a relic. You know? and, and, and I don't know how true it is, but they say when he died, they say some, some um, publishing house purchased his home and turned it into a Bible printing place. Isn't that something? That's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, just turned it into a Bible printing place. Now, now and I do know... Because I've read the story of how he died on several occasions. And, and they say when he died, he was a man, he's an infidel. Didn't believe in God at all. But he was getting so delirious in his mind that he was laying there and he was screaming out, calling out the name of God. And then one, the next moment he'd turn around and, and cuss God. And then the next moment he'd turn around and think that he was Jesus. And then he'd turn around again and start calling out to God. All of this. And they say when he died, he was screaming. He was yelling, and they had interviewed the, the, the caretaker that he had all uh, of the, the end of his days, and the caretaker was a Christian. And, and interviewing her, they asked her about his death, and, and her words were, and I'll never forget, her words were, if, if I lived another lifetime, I'd never want to be at the bedside and see another infidel die. Okay? 
because his death was so loud, so violent. He was so tormented by by what he knew to be true. See, that's what makes the problem with the devil so bad. He knows the Bible to be truth. But he fails to be able to grasp it and believe it and act accordingly. So he torments everybody who's involved with it. The scripture says in verse 16 now, and we're still working on God being the revealer of, uh, of truth. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of what? God. See? Inspiration. Inspiration is a word that we use fairly Loosely, we will say, I read a book and that book inspired me. See? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to a song and we'll say, that's a very inspirational song. See? Nothing wrong with that. I'm not getting on you about that at all. I'm just saying the different, the different nuances of the word inspiration. But when Timothy, when Paul is right here to Timothy, he's using this in the sense that Men who were involved with the compilation of Scripture had the Spirit of God so operative in their life that when they began to write certain things, even though there was no loss of their own personality and temperament, no loss of their own vocabulary and use of of syntax and idiom and language and all of that, they were able to write what it was exactly that God wanted them to write, as though the king himself were putting the thoughts in their head. That's what it's talking about. It's not saying they were a robot, and it wasn't saying they didn't have the ability to change their mind, but what it is saying that the inspiration of God was so powerful and influence in them that they wrote what they wrote, and if it's inspired of God then it can't be contradictory. See? If it's inspired of God, then it has to be somewhat infallible, inerrant. It has to be perfect. If salvation is true, and it is, and we believe regeneration is true, and it is, then if I'm born of him who is perfect, then I'm perfect in my new birth. That's not to say I'm without sin. That's to say that my new birth, my regeneration was perfect. It's not like when you became a Christian, you were partially born again. That's what I'm saying. Okay. You weren't born again with defects. So that when you think about it, you say, well, I, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm not really sure I'm, I'm all the way a Christian yet. No, you're either in the kingdom or you're not. You, you read the old Puritans who were here in America uh, 200, 300 years ago, and you read some of their diaries. Um, I'm trying to think of the gentleman that died in Jonathan Edwards' home who was a missionary to the Indians, and Jonathan Edwards wrote a, uh, published his diaries. It'll come to me. But but when you read some of the diaries of some of these Puritans and they tried to describe their new birth, it, it, it seemed like it was an agonizing process. They They wanted to become Christian, but they never could be sure that they were really Christian because they weren't. Sure, if they were elected by God, so they they would read and hope that they were Christian. And then on Monday, they would really feel like they're saved and had a great day and felt like the grace of God was helping them. But by Thursday, they had so many internal struggles that they didn't really believe that they were part of the elect. And and some of them died without any true assurance in their heart. But God gives you assurance when you believe that you're born of him that is perfect, 
and that you're perfect in being born of him. God gives you the assurance. The sin nature within all of us, which gives us the propensity to sin, to do evil, which makes us susceptible to yield to sin. That isn't done away with when you become a Christian. It's just simply somewhat disabled. That's why the scripture says, reckon yourself to be dead. Whereas before, when you were in sin, you were incapable of, of ceasing from sinning. You, you, just, you just did it because it, it was pleasurable. You enjoyed it. When you truly become a Christian, God gives you the ability now in the midst of temptation. He says, with every temptation, there is a way of escape. You can now say no. You don't have to pick the needle up again, stick it in your arm. You do not have to use your mouth to swear at somebody. You do not have to be an alcoholic. You can say no. God gives the ability. That, that, that's all in the new birth. But the scripture says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. If you don't teach people these things when they become a Christian, then they'll become a Christian and still live exactly like they lived before they were saved. And the Bible calls that carnality, person living as a carnal person, because they've never been taught that uh, God gives me the ability now to say no. Now, people don't always say no, but that's not his fault. See, that's that's on us. Look at it again. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Uh, notice these descriptions of scripture. It's profitable for doctrine. If you want to know what scripture means and says. You have to read it. It's profitable for reproof. If you need to be admonished or told that what you're doing is wrong, read the Bible. The Bible will show you where you're doing right and where you're doing wrong. When we reprove someone, we're constructively explaining to them why that behavior was incorrect. That's reproof. For correction... There we are again. See, when, when you correct a person, you, you're taking something that is being done improperly, something that's not being done right, and you're trying to put it in its right place so that if it is done the right way, it will produce profit in a person's life. Okay, that, that's that's what scripture does. If the scripture says, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit or qualified. That means if I put my hand to the plow and I look back, I'm doing it incorrectly because you can't plow a straight row if you're looking this way. So the thing's going to be all over here and back and forth. Now, every year at harvest time, I start begging farmers, please let me run the combine. And I can't get any of them to do it. And I mean, I say it over and over again. Well, let me run the combine. I said, Pastor, you don't know anything about that. I said, what difference does it make? You just have to go straight, right? And just got to grab some stuff and then it'll toss it into the thing. And then you auger it into something and somebody's going to carry it somewhere else. Just let me do that. I can get her done. I said, all the, all the roads won't be straight, but I guarantee you by the end of the day, I will have covered all the, all the, all the ground that you want me to cover. And then they said, well, no, we don't want you to do it. You'll get out there, turn the thing over, and it'll cause an accident. And I say, look, it's only money. It's only money. Well, they, they, they don't agree with me. Well, he, he, here's the thing, though. 
if somebody had got me when I was about five or six, and I had been raised in that environment, and had been taught how to do that, they wouldn't have any problem with it at all. The reason I know that because I see these 15 to 16 year olds driving, driving the grain cart and here I am 48 and they won't let me near the thing. See? Right. So you, you can correct somebody and then it becomes a profitable venture. But if you don't correct somebody, it doesn't profit anybody. In fact, it be, it, the returns diminish. So think about scripture. If, if a person doesn't take the time to read scripture rightly, correctly, Think of how hard it is for a person to have a profitable Christian life when the Bible talks about, about us bringing forth fruit of the Spirit. If we don't apply the Word of God the right way, it's possible, as Peter says, to be a Christian for a very long time and be barren, unable to see things afar off. Barren in a Christian life. Well, let me finish this up. And, and then for instruction in righteousness, the believer needs to know how to live a righteous life Live in accordance with God's, God's, uh, God's plan. Righteousness is God's desire. The book of Romans is all about the righteousness of God. From chapter 1 straight on out uh, towards the end, it's about the righteousness of God as it's revealed in creation. It's about the righteousness of God as it is applied in judgment. It's about the righteousness of God as it is revealed through Christ's coming. It's about the righteousness of God that we have in our standing with him. And then he says in verse 17 that the man of God will be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now let's come back over here to Matthew 16, where we'll finish this up. Notice then, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. So it's God that brings the revelation to us. He speaks to us in our devotion time. He speaks to us before we go to sleep. He speaks to us clearly so that we can walk with him every day and have confidence about what we have learned. And we have to stop right there because we're all out of time. Oh, my. Our Heavenly Father. Well, let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you that your word is true. We're so grateful that when you open up our eyes to behold the truth that we're able to change, we want to be we want to be transformed by truth, Lord. And we want our life to be governed by it, shaped by it, and we want to stand on that firm foundation every day. So thank you for the blood of Jesus, thank you for the cross of Christ, thank you for dying and giving your son and Lord, we just pray every day would be better and better in Jesus name. Amen, 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 amen.